0: Hello,
1: Howdy, sir. So we outed you in your last episode of the Stone podcast as being Kevin, <laughs> and we—I intentionally put it in the title. I'm I'm very proactive, associated with people existing in their uh, in their uh, well NSA ready form. Let's just call it that. But um, I have a number of topics. Heron asked me to ask a few things, and uh, I also wanted to give you some Z Realm material. Uh, because I think your your last appearance I created some audio that was used in the first episode of the Xerum podcast, uh, and I have interesting things to opine about associated with zombies that I want <laughs> to impact right. back to you. But the, the question that Heron asked, and I think this is something that has really fascinated me watching the period of time since we last kind of formally spoke, Was been the emergence of you as a... Which, basically, the seed has always been there. It's kind of been percolating. But the emergence of you as a professional podcaster.
0: A professional being somebody who earns their living at it? Yes. Yes. What what living I earn comes from podcasting?
1: And I guess I've always been... Not sceptical but just concerned that people would get into podcasting with the view that they could make a living from it and then get disgruntled along the way. But you have been able to cultivate an audience that is interactive in some level, but is financially interactive, which I think is particularly interesting. And can you talk a little bit about the, the kind of progressive evolution into professional podcasting?
0: There is, you know, at first, I didn't even have a PayPal donation link up. I did, I think, 18 episodes, just without even the possibility of somebody being able to throw a dollar in the hat. And then my my comrade in podcasting from early on, the Dope Fiend, he, he told me, look, people, they should at least have the option of paying. And if they want to listen, they should pay. And so I, I put up the donation link. And it brought in some money every now and again. But, you know, I always had to have other sources of income. And when I got here to New York, I was doing odd jobs, sort of under the table work, uh, mostly in the, the food industry, not in restaurants or anything, but in little entrepreneurial operations where it was really quite dangerous work. And I, I'm so glad that I've stopped doing it. But in order to stop doing it, I had to replace that income with something. And so I created the Sea Realm Vault podcast, which is based on the premise that some people like what I do enough that they're going to pay for it. Not as a sort of you know, dollar in the tip jar sort of thing, but up front. I want to listen. I would like to purchase this thing before I've even heard it. And, you know, it hasn't made me a, a millionaire by any stretch of the imagination or even enough, you know, hasn't provided me with enough to have uh, health insurance or something like that. But it's more than replaced the income from the dangerous manual labor that I was engaged in. And it, it's growing, you know, not quickly, but I'm not looking for it to grow quickly. I, I've had a big chunk of money dropped on me in the past and it wasn't really good for me. And I would much rather build up to some sort of uh, comfortable existence than have one just land on me
1: in terms of your listener base through things like the facebook group through your couch surfing tour through probably a variety of other metrics you must have a keen sense of what they enjoy do you find yourself focusing the vault on what you perceive your audience is liking in order to secure more paying listeners Or are you able to keep some kind of abstract form of independence through this process?
0: I've kept complete independence in terms of the content on the Vault. Uh, It's as much to please me as it is anything. It differs from the Sea Realm podcast only in that I'll get a little bit riskier on the Vault. I'll say things on the Vault or I will play things on the Vault that I wouldn't play on the Sea Realm podcast just because on the Sea Realm podcast, anything that I put out there can replicate. It can just go viral. I wish it would, but (laughs) it could go (laughs) viral. And I could spend a whole lot of time defending or rephrasing something that I said just offhand and which got out of control. Because the Vault listenership is small, I don't worry so much about that. And I'm willing to talk about things in the Vault that I don't talk about on the Sea Realm podcast.
1: It interests me, this notion that you are while you say you're not performing self-censorship, you're exploring a greater degree of creative freedom in the paid walled environment. And that kind of interests me, because what what topics do you not want to touch in the C-realm that you feel comfortable covering in The Vault? Oh, the
0: thing that leaps to mind for me is we've done a few shows on pornography Mm. in The Vault. And... One, any mention of pornography is a red flag to a certain stripe of ideological feminists who I just don't care to deal with those folks. Mm. And so I'd much rather speak to that uh, in, in the small audience. And also, you know, pornography is very uh, clearly delineated into various, um, you could say, genres or possibly ghettos. And uh, there is one that appeals to me that I'll talk about on the vault that I wouldn't dream of mentioning. Mm. On the Sea Realm podcast, so uh, I I won't talk about it on the Stone Ape podcast.
1: <laughs> you talk about a fear of a firestorm. Have there been topics where you felt this firestorm on Sea Realm?
0: Nothing leaps to mind, and I think it's largely because when I get an email from somebody who's obviously responding from some wounded ideological place and they're looking for a fight, I just I don't respond to them. I don't encourage them. I don't give them any any reason to continue. So it it doesn't well up. And I've long since gotten over the the habit of doing the vanity search, see what other people are saying about me. I just don't care, don't have time.
1: Returning to the audience of the Sea Realm podcast, you've talked about your own, the the fact that basically you're recording podcasts for yourself fundamentally, and you've been able to kind of gather a, a few folk who have similar interests along the way that continue to listen in. This is true. Is your ability... I mean, in terms of finding the topics, in terms of finding the people, do you have frequent listeners that say, hey, I find this funnily enough at the Model Rail podcast, enough talking about X, Y, Z. Start talking about A, B, C. We've had a little bit too much of this. Start talking about that. Do you, Do you have key demographic listeners that hit you up on a periodic basis and just say... Maybe you should read this, or maybe you should bring so and so on, or you know, maybe a little bit less with the peak oil. I mean, is, is this? Do you get, or is it purely your own your own whim associated with who you invite on?
0: I have gotten interview suggestions from listeners that I ran with, and it turned out really great. I've even given some listeners authority to approach uh, potential guests as sort of freelance producers of the show, and that has worked out well. Um, for every like 10 to 20 suggestions I get, I pursue maybe one of them. And it's just a matter of, you know, there's only one Realm show per week for a month, 52 a year. I just can't do that many new interviews with new guests, particularly because I don't like to go into an interview completely cold or just having read a press release or something. I like to read the book or see the movie or whatever. And so I spend a lot of time. It's, it's. This is maybe the one sacrifice in terms of my own happiness of doing the SeaROM podcast. There are lots of books I would like to read that I don't read because I'm reading the book of the person that I'll be interviewing tomorrow, and there are people who are way too famous for me to get on the SeaROM podcast who write books that I would like to read. So that's that's a bit of a sacrifice. Uh, what was your question though? I know that was a, that was a tangent.
1: So no, I mean no. Let's explore this tangent. This, this if anything, the Stone Age podcast is solely about tangents. so i too read a lot and i'm now through actually through my professional life starting to realize that the amount that i read is perceived as being a problem that if you read i mean i read on the order of like 10 books a month give or take but of that order if you read that volume in c- c- the society that I interact with, it is perceived on some level to be a problem. And I'm also interested because I... I mean, we have a mutual friend of Douglas Rushkoff. The whole phenomena associated with what has happened with the book in the past ten years makes me wonder about this whole reading book thing as being something that is completely... Increasingly, I'm... I'm part of a vastly shrinking minority. And that these books exist as uh, almost like a physical and an intellectual disease which stops me from communicating with a group of people. For example, yesterday morning I had a two-hour-long conversation with some early 20-something guys who just graduated university, one of them still at Harvard, who are very interested in artificial life. They don't read... don't read books (laughs) they're intellectuals on some level i mean they understand projects and concepts and ideas and they're very much following in kind of mimetic space but i'm a dinosaur in terms of reading books what's your sense associated with whether the book will continue and by consuming the books of the guests that you're having on maybe you're missing a group of guests i mean did you feel a similar feeling associated with books currently or are you I mean, describe describe the book as a form. Well, books are a strange
0: thing. Um, Amazon.com is doing very well. They sell a lot of books. People buy a lot of books. They don't read them, but they still think that (laughs) having the book on the shelf somehow, I don't know, confers some benefit to them. Um, John Michael Greer, who's a a fairly regular guest on the c Realm podcast, it seems that half of, of his modus operandi is just his willingness to read books that were written more than say 50 years ago. There's such an aversion to reading old books in our culture that you can just make that your habit, read old books and talk about them in an intelligible way that connects with people who have that phobia and wouldn't read those things, but are very interested in the contents of those books. Uh, my Part of my modus operandi is, is similar. It's just that I read books and I convey some of the content of those books via my, convent, my podcast interviews and people are interested in the contents, contents of those books and so they're interested in the podcast. The c audience is a pretty small audience but it's, it's a very uh, – it's a high quality audience. It's a group of people that I'm very happy to be connected to and I realized that many of them love books loved reading books and remember the days when they read books like the days when they wrote letters by hand with some, some longing and some wistfulness and some really sweet nostalgia. And they would like to have it back, but it's not anywhere in their current schedule. But maybe they can catch a piece of it by listening to the Z realm podcast on their commute to work.
1: So it's an interesting idea associated with reading. I mean, particularly now as, as the C-Realm is your, is your professional outlet that reading books for you is part of the responsibility you have as the host of the C-ROM.
0: It is. It's a self-imposed responsibility. There I could certainly, and have on occasion, you know, to my chagrin, read just snippets or listened to an interview someplace else just to get some talking points together and then just relied on my familiarity with that subject area to inform the conversation. But, you know, I'd love to read books. It's, it's not any great sacrifice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do too. I mean, this is the interesting phenomenon that I'm going through currently, that I'm both vastly downsizing the quantity of books that I have, but also realizing that the process of reading, and I, a, a majority of the books that I have, and a good majority of the books that I've gotten rid of, are in the older than 40 years category. And I'm particularly mindful that there are certain books that the information just doesn't exist in any other form. And this is something that has actually been part of the process of going through the books, is trying to validate that the information exists externally. Philosophy books, these kind of things, easy to validate that I can get access to Kant and Hume and Hegel and everything I need electronically. But personal accounts of uh, aspects of the First and Second World War the Civil War, um, you know, various esoteric, you know, accounts through these periods of time, and particularly of civilians as well through these circumstances, very, very difficult to find. But then again, this is a separate narrative to the kind of stuff that you would be reading for the CROM podcast on a regular basis. When you finish these books do you feel an obligation to pass them on to others or do you actually maintain a library through your, you know, reading for the serial? Well,
0: since I lived in Seattle in the mid nineties, I have moved every 18 months thereabouts. And I've just had to part with huge, I I just part with my entire library from time to time, maybe selecting two or three special books to carry with me, but I, I don't, I don't keep them. Uh, as often as I can, I get them in electronic form. So if I'm if I get a Mobi file or particularly if I bought it from Amazon, I can't share that. You know, it's just it's it's in the cloud, I own it, I have access to it, but I can't give it to anybody. A lot of the books, the physical books that come to me are inscribed to me, and I I feel a a duty to hold on to them even if they're just in boxes in a place that I used to live. Like I have, you know, I, I leave a trail of things. So I have uh Boxes of my own book in storage at the Eco Village Training Center at the farm in Summertown, Tennessee. I've got a new in the box composting toilet there that I have owned since <laughs> I think 2003, uh-huh. and I've yet to take a crap in.
1: Very good. <laughs> <laughs> now, now we're getting to the Stone Age quality content, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, it is an interesting phenomenon. I mean, I... Let,
0: let me just say that you know, you, you've outed me and you've got the no new pseudonyms rule. But when somebody writes to me or somebody that I've met and introduced myself to as KMO and they call me Kevin, they're just taking a step back in terms of familiarity. They're, they're identifying themselves as somebody not in the know, somebody who doesn't know what I'm up to or what I'm about.
1: <laughs> oh. oh, I was blindsided, folks. Blindsided. I, I, will, I will avoid using any naming term for you in the proceeding. <laughs> Minutes that we have left together, if I can compose myself from that. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, aside from the evolution of, uh, you know, your, your professional podcasting and books and these kind of things, is cats. You now live in an environment, once again, with a cat. I do. Can you talk a little bit about the existential learning that you get from being in an environment with a cat once again?
0: You say once again, I've, I pretty much always have cats. Um, the cat that lives where I live now is the same cat that lived with me in Tennessee. It's the same cat that she was one of two uh, who lived with me in Maryland and before that in Arkansas. I love dogs. Absolutely love dogs. I've had terrible, a terrible success rate in having a dog of my own. i I've had three that were not the family dog. Cause when I was a child growing up, there was a family dog that was a year older than I was. And you know, she was perfect, just the perfect, well-behaved suburban dog. And her only flaw was that she knew that she could go to the houses of various neighbors and make sad eyes and get fed. And she got really fat and overweight and probably died prematurely because of it. But, uh, The three dogs that I've tried to have that were my dogs were all terrible failures and that they were really ill-behaved in spite of my very systematic efforts to train them. And it just hasn't worked out. Where cats, it's just easy. Uh, They just, you know, you show them where the litter box is. They use it. They know that you give them the food and you give it to them. Now, my current cat, uh, she's got it really, really good. She had a, a tough time. she got shot she lost a leg she 's a three legged cat now, but uh, since i've lived here in New York, my girlfriend Olga has been feeding my cat a raw meat diet, so she gets pork and beef and chicken and organ meats and uh I had just fed her you know handfuls of dry food, which is probably mostly corn <laughs> so she 's lost a lot of weight
1: corn and ash yes
0: <laughs> she's she's lost a lot of uh She hasn't lost a lot of weight, but she's redistributed the weight. So she's in in better condition now. She's got a better composition in terms of fat to to muscle ratio. Her coat is silkier. It's more lustrous. She doesn't shed as much. She's just in really great health. But uh, when we got here, she and I, Olga had a cat of her own. And that cat terrorized my cat. And for a couple of months, my cat couldn't even get off the couch without being attacked. So she was simultaneously terrorized and her horizons had shrunk because I had had her at the eco village Training Center where I lived in a one-room cabin and I had a window open most times unless it was just really cold. And the cat could come and go as she wished through the window. So I lived in the woods and she could go and hunt in the woods. There was certainly a, an element of danger there because there were skunks and foxes and raccoons and possums and you know, she's a three-legged cat. But her world shrunk from the woods of Tennessee – with a nice little cabin to retreat to when necessary, to a couch. So she was obviously feeling terrorized by that and really deprived by that, but at the same time she must have been feeling better because her diet had improved so much. And I was just wondering what it would feel like to be simultaneously terrorized and stressed and feeling inexplicably good.
1: So I'm assuming that the uh, terrorist cat has um, since departed? She has.
0: She was an old cat, and her her passing was a long time in coming.
1: For some more than others, I guess. (laughs) Well, for her owner, (laughs) in particular. It is an interesting phenomena, the existence of cats as individual entities and then cats in groups. I mean, up until being married, in fact, really, when we moved back to the US, my experience of cats was pretty well solitary, aside from the time spent in Malaysia. But my wife has always had multiple cats, and quite unbeknownst to me, this occurred in a relatively rapid succession when we moved back to this part of the world. Um, And I think we've, we've had at least three or four cats for a majority of the time here. And, you know, we've exchanged cats on occasion, we've lost cats, we've gained cats, you know. But it is an interesting phenomena when you are in the special minority in the environment. Um, and it's something that I kind of continue to learn from in really quite interesting ways. In terms of, I didn't realize you had this cat with you at the Eco Village Training Center. When we talked, you made no acknowledgement of that, maybe instinctively.
0: When I went to the Eco Village Training Center, it was with the understanding that I would not be bringing my cats with me.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And so, there were two cats that I left in Maryland in the care of the, um, the building manager where I lived. And they were allowed in the house, but without me there, they basically became outdoor cats. And I decided after a time that I had best move them. So, I was going to take them to Arkansas, which is where my mother lives, and let them live there. And when I visited my place in Maryland. I rented a room, even though I didn't live there full time. It was just a place to, to visit with my kids. And that's where the cats lived. I could only catch the one cat. They were brother and sister, by the way. They had lived together their whole lives. They'd never been apart. I could only catch the brother. And so I drove him to Arkansas and left him. And he got out in a thunderstorm and was obviously confused, got lost and was hit by a car and killed. So now there's just the one cat. And I got a call from the building manager telling me that the cat was hurt. And I didn't, I didn't really know more than that. And I asked her to take the cat to the vet. And I think because she didn't have the money, she, she didn't. But I drove to Maryland, got the cat, took the cat to the vet, and they x-rayed her and discovered that she had been shot and her leg was irreparably broken. And the, the diagnosis was grim. The, the vet said, either have the leg amputated or have the cat put down. And I asked how much it would cost to have the limb amputated and it was, it was out of my price range. I couldn't possibly swing it. So I called my mother in Arkansas and I asked her to call the vet there and see what it would cost. And it was going to be about $3,500 in Maryland mm. and it was $300 yes. in Arkansas. Yeah. So I, I put the cat in the truck with me and we drove from Maryland to Arkansas and she got her her leg taken off. And then I was taking her back to Maryland, but I had stopped at the Eco Village Training Center. And while I was there with the cat who was there, you know, on a short term stay, I got a message from via the landlord from the building owner who basically, who's a cat lover, but who basically said, if he's not going to be there, no three legged cats. No. So now Mocha was sort of without a home. And because she was three-legged, and I don't think she was a danger to birds, and because uh, Albert Bates, who was my friend, sponsor, and employer at the Ecovillage Training Center, uh, wanted me to stick around, we just came to an agreement that Mocha could stay. So she got to live in an ideal environment, because my little cabin there at the Ecovillage Training Center, which was in the woods, was at the end of a gravel road, and absolutely, positively, no dogs allowed. That was a hard, fast rule. So she lived in an environment where there were no passing cars and no dogs and lots of small things to hunt and kill.
1: (laughs) It is amazing the ability for cats, for that to be the kind of golden location for cats to live in terms of an environment away, as, as far away from humanity as possible, but still in some way connected with humans. I watched recently a BBC documentary which had been recommended by a number of family members associated with putting cameras and uh, GPS trackers on a series of cats that lived in a village. I'm not sure if you've seen this documentary.
0: I think I've heard reference
1: Yeah, it's well worth watching. It's only an hour's worth of time, and it exists on YouTube, so you can find it out. I think it's a Horizon documentary associated with the life of the cat or something like that. Easy to find on YouTube. Um... The thing that struck me from that, and also my experience of cats, particularly in Australia, is that the farm cat, the cat that lives out on a farm, that catches mice, as you say, small critters, and lives in a kind of semi-feral but human interactive existence, seems to just live the kind of visionary cat life. I feel really disturbed in some regard that I have these creatures that unfortunately, we have neighbours downstairs that let their cats out, and, you know, the cats survive from a kind of day-to-day perspective, but we live right by, uh, you know, a th- three-lane on either side, you know, major roadway, just literally out the drive. Um, and, you know, I, I just wonder, particularly... One of our cats, who's actually a Persian, is a runner. We've owned enough cats that we have these different kind of descriptions for the behaviours and this cat and another cat that my in-laws are currently looking after are what we call runners, which means that they will, as soon as they leave the space, they will keep going for as long and as far as they need to. And I followed uh, the cat that's with the in-laws for three or four blocks (laughs) as he kind of scurries away. Our Persian is completely useless out in the wild. My wife found her in the Mojave Desert. completely matted and just really kind of on the edge of of survival. Uh, There are some cats that are obviously, you know, ideally suited for these kind of environments, but it is... I do feel saddened that, you know, I have to maintain indoor cats. Is is Mocha currently an indoor cat? Or does she do some...
0: She is a strictly indoor cat. She lives in a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, on the fifth floor. So there's... There's no possibility. She gets to sit in open windows, and that's as close as she gets to the outdoors these days.
1: But she gets a wonderful diet for her suffering.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. She's not suffering. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, a phenomenon I wanted to discuss with you was associated with zombie movies and with the rise of the PG 13 zombie movie. Maybe this doesn't irk you as much as it irks me. But I'm wondering if you even follow this as a phenomena or if it's purely my own musing associated with PG-13 movies as a thing in and of themselves.
0: I don't pay attention to movie ratings much. Uh, As far as I can remember, World War Z is the first PG-13 rated zombie film that I've seen. Can you name others?
1: That's the one that affects me.
0: Okay. I went to see it on opening day. Uh, yes. My z Realm co-host, Marty was in New York. He was visiting. We had done a multi episode arc on the audiobook of world war Z. And I have, you know, read the, the dead tree version as well, which includes material that's not in the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Love the book. Loved it. I was thoroughly prepared to hate world war Z, the movie. And, uh, I enjoyed it. I was okay with it. I, I recognize, you know, why people who adore the book would hate the film, and I I just I somehow managed to take Max Brooks's advice and see it not as the film version of his book, but as a film that for some reason has the same title as his book. And as, as a film that is unrelated to that book, I was okay with it.
1: Maybe it's, maybe it's something that i found associated with PG-13 as a phenomena. I think, historically, it was actually my connection with the International Game Developers Association that kind of brought me into the fray associated with film ratings and what this rating meant, particularly in terms of just people that I wouldn't normally philosophically agree with, um, associated with shaping content and shaping information. And I think certainly independently of World War Z, I have, you know, studied the PG-13 phenomena, particularly about what is included and what is not included, and I guess made some kind of existential decision to vastly minimise the quantity of PG-13 films I consume. Uh, To the point where it takes a very special film... ...for me to consider it as a PG-13 film, uh, going and seeing it. This has been an ongoing debate in my marriage. (laughs) Because my wife is very, you know, passionately interested in films... ...as I am on some level. But doesn't really mind the kinds of perturbations that PG-13 requires... I'm interested, actually, if there are a series of zombie films that come out. Actually, the um, there was another. I think there was another zombie film that was PG thirteen. W- was was Zombieland PG thirteen,
0: or was it? R? I don't remember. it It seems like it could have been. I, yes, <laughs> I could check.
1: I'm, I'm pretty sure, actually, that there have been a few zombie films. This is why, when I framed this topic, I thought it wasn't alone. But now, as I sit in my uh, un- uncooled apartment as this, you know, the cold water is taking less and less of an effect on me. Um, but yeah, my my suspicion is that there are more, and I'm just wondering if you have any concern as a kind of purist, as you've described, associated with going through the books and you know the audio book, and then going and seeing the film, that you are concerned that there may be, you know. Folks that are just starting out in their exploration of the zombie genre, that may, you know, may miss certain elements of the grit associated with it, or are you just happy that there are zombie films out there in popular consciousness? i
0: I'm not particularly worried about the zombie film going away because it's such there's such a low bar to entry that I think that amateur or you know, novice filmmakers will be using that as their entry for a very long time. Um, My concern with world war Z, particularly in the marketing was that because they weren't going to show any gore or any really uh, just disgusting zombies that, that really look like (laughs) animated corpses that we see all of this destruction we see society breaking down, but we don't see why. And even in the, the like, promotional posters and things, we basically just see Brad Pitt looking out over uh, an urban landscape with fires burning and helicopters flying overhead, but we don't see any zombies. And it says World War Z, but the Z is not explicitly zombie. You know, it's just world war. And then there's a particular letter which, you know, denotes which world war it is. And I was thinking about it. In terms of predictive programming, which in general, I don't, you know, it's not a a narrative that I subscribe to that the controllers of the the mass consciousness are preparing the population for certain eventualities by showing them images of it in the movies first. But I think about that in terms of World War Z. What, What is all of this imagery of society going up in smoke, of the military um, imposing some limited order, but not to control society, but just to preserve little pieces of the infrastructure and apparatus of industrial society so that it can be restarted after this, this emergency has been dealt with. And it, it just seemed as though the zombie element had been removed from the zombie apocalypse and we're just left with this very unspecified apocalypse. And I wondered what the effect of that would be on mass consciousness, particularly for people who had no interest in the film and who had no interest in seeing it, but because they live with TV and they live with mass media, they couldn't escape it. That that was of interest to me, but um, I'm not too worried about the plight of the zombie apocalypse narrative or zombie genre cinema. I I think it's secure.
1: Well, I guess you've actually exactly illustrated my concern associated with the PG-13 format in this light that actually a number of the points of classification that are required in order to make a PG-13 film versus an R film basically clean up a lot of these ethical questions in terms of the portrayal of this kind of information. I mean, the, the minutia associated with interacting with teenagers, for example, and the kinds of content... This is not sex and violence this is ideas fundamentally that cannot be shown in pg13 films makes me wonder whether there's kind of things that we've talked about you know in the past and you talked about on the zero associated with the you know m- more interesting philosophical concerns of of zombie uh, <laughs> zombie related uh, material being cleaned from the PG-13 zombie film, leave it in almost a new genre in terms of describing really something where the zombies could be replaced by robots, aliens, you know, a variety of other... Their humanity need not be there. In fact, really, in order to avoid a variety of the ethical quandaries that would probably rate the film R, that needs to be scrubbed up. I mean, there are a variety of things that, um, as as you've noted, should exist in a zombie film that cannot exist in a PG-13 zombie film. And what interests me here is if it becomes a new genre, then is it just basically killing the historical phenomena associated with zombie films and broader ethical discourse? And if that is so, is this a thing that you are still willing to talk about on the zero podcast i mean where do you where do you stand associated with zombie films that are without any ethical intrigue
0: i don't know that i've seen any i i think even with the the very sanitized version of world war z that we got on the big screen there was still some ethical intrigue it's obviously a topic you've thought a lot about and as i say i don't Pay much attention to movie ratings. People tell me that a movie is good and I'll download it from the Pirate Bay. The only thing that drives me to the theater is the prospect of spectacle. Like the film that I'm really interested in seeing now is um, the Guillermo del Toro Giant Robots Fighting Monsters thing, uh, Pacific Rim.
1: Because mm-hmm.
0: I want to see it in IMAX 3D and just lose myself in the experience. It may well be. Rated PG-13. I don't know. I I don't see any attempt in it to make a point or tell a story other than I grew up watching giant robots fighting monsters. I'd really like to portray that with modern cinematic filmmaking techniques. But the zombies, like, think about the TV show, The Walking Dead. I Certainly, if you listen to the the Zero podcast, you know I have criticisms of it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But it seems as though AMC, which is a basic cable channel, it's it's not a pay channel. It's not one that has a special dispensation to show nudity or extreme violence or anything. They're making a point of being particularly grisly with the the decomposed state of the zombies, the way that zombies are dispatched, the way that human characters treat each other. one, One message from the zombie apocalypse genre in general is that Zombies are pretty straightforward in their, their motivations and in their behavior. And if you survive the first few weeks, you're probably golden, except the other humans who also survive. They become the major danger in your environment. And I don't think we saw that in World War Z. So, And we do see it in the book, for sure. But particularly at the end of, you know, the book is told in this, this nonlinear narrative format so you know that from the very beginning that the humans win the zombie war but after the u.s military has advanced across the entire north american continent from the stronghold in california and retaken all of the you know the country the former territory of the country and they've dispatched the zombies the zombies are no longer a threat then they have to go back and they have to pacify all the people who are really bitter at having been abandoned by the government and who no longer consider themselves citizens of the United States or sovereign you know, uh, as being subjects of this authority because the authority pissed away its legitimacy by not helping these people. And so they had to go in and they had to conquer all of these strongholds of humans who just wanted to be left alone. And the imperative of the larger civilization is, no, we don't tolerate separatists. You can't be left alone. Even if you're not at war with us, if you're not antagonistic to us, you cannot be left on your own. Local autonomy is not an option. And, yeah, that was, I think, a, a pretty important message in, in the movie or in the, the, the book, which is completely absent from the movie. So, yeah, I'm starting to come around to your point of view, I think, that uh, a lot of the, the, the <laughs> philosophical meat that the, the zombie apocalypse narrative has to offer is not compatible with a, a PG-13 rating.
1: It's always good to convert people to one's own thinking. What do you think of The Walking Dead, though? I look. The problem is through my day job, the, working, the Walking Dead is content. I have a very. This is actually. There's been a strange internal evolution in my own consumption of film and documentaries. There's been an unfortunate byproduct of working for Netflix. And it's really actually very interesting. I've had the discussion with the Simpsons fellow along this line as well, that my whole relationship with the format now has really fundamentally changed. And once I have to use something as content in my day job in order to debug issues, it changes its relationship. It's a bit like reading a book and then being asked to read a book at school, the same book. You know, I had this experience with 1984. I independently read it, and then I was asked to read it in high school. <laughs> and unfortunately, The Walking Dead is part of that content, because it's, it's stuff that I've used and worked on associated with my day job really heavily, finding various bits and pieces through it. I think it's good. I think it's better than the PG-13 zombie movie. To return perhaps more abstract outside of zombies... What interests me through the stuff I'm doing with the comic book currently is the ability for it to move into kind of storyboarding for, you know, low-budget film. And I've worked historically with filmmakers periodically. Um, And what interests me is how you actually get ideas out to the general public. I used to think books were the way. I now think actually you do it better through film, either documentary or, you know, what is being produced currently from one extreme to the other. But through this, the major obstacle is the construction of ratings from my own perspective. And what interests me is that the what, what they've been able to do with Walking Dead has been kind of covertly getting a lot of stuff that probably would have tripped them up if they'd done it in a film. But they've been able to do it in such a way... I mean, you look at South Park as a similar example. There's a lot of stuff in South Park where if they moved it to a movie format, because they have kind of episode-by-episode interactions with censors, they're able to move certain things through that they wouldn't be able to get through the film censorship system. But it is very interesting, this idea of ideas in an abstract and the way in which you kind of convert them for popular consumption. And certainly, my own thinking, because I feel very strongly, even though I 'm a consumer of books, that the book as a phenomena to get an idea out is really just completely disintegrated, that there are other ways to get ideas out, but they exist in documentaries and they exist in you know what's visually consumed by the masses now um, but I think I've kind of answered your question in terms of I think they 've done slightly better in World War Z, they've done slightly better than they could, but it's still, it's still missing a lot of, you know, there, there are still token characters and all these kind of things which really, and I, my wife is a consumer of the comic book, loved the comic book, so I've had a kind of passive flipping through pages, picking it up off the table, kind of interaction with the comic book, but once something becomes part of my day job, associated with errors in content and analysis and trying to do a wide variety of things it becomes a material it's funny actually i've discovered a few interesting documentaries and a few interesting shows through my day-to-day job at netflix but they really are a very different phenomena and because um when you deal with content in an abstract form difficult and harrowing scenes have a certain degree of impact on you you have to become relatively numb to that because most of the most of the interaction you have with this is to debug some esoteric problem, basically. So yeah, that's that's been my relationship there. I wanted to I wanted to take the topic in a slightly different direction. Part of the recent immigration bill was the ability to use drones on the border, and I I'm not sure if you followed the rise of drones and the use of drones. oh yes yeah but. The ability for drones to be used domestically, in particular as they accidentally target civilians, is a really interesting phenomena that I'm waiting to emerge. I know that some police forces are using unmanned drones currently for surveillance, but the use of manned drones on US soil, it's not manned drones, the use of armed drones on US soil and the ability for random casualties which previously have only existed in, you know, Yemen, Pakistan, you know, these parts of the world, being moved to US soil. And the way in which the media will have to, as they have when it's been in Yemen or Pakistan, describe these things in very abstract ways so the population doesn't become fundamentally disgusted in these kind of terms. What are your thoughts associated with the the movement of... um, you know, these military devices on, into civilian populations and uh, whatever chaos will ensue.
0: That's, oh, that's a depressing topic. It's a small subset of the general militarization of the police force that has happened over the past couple of decades. It started out as a result, I think, of the war on drugs, but it has completely changed uh, justifications now and is, is very much packaged as the war on terror. But I think in actuality that while mo- a lot of the topics that I talk about on the CROM podcast are, you just cannot entertain them in the legitimate mainstream conversation that is, you know, for which the corporate media news agencies are the gatekeeper, you, you can't really talk about peak oil. You can't talk about various failure modes for industrial civilization. You can't talk about the. Um, Oh, the unworkability, really, of a, a debt-based money system that requires perpetual growth in order to maintain stability in the economy. These are just unmentionable. You can talk about them all you want on the Internet. But as long as it doesn't appear on MSNBC or Fox News, then it's not real. It's, the Internet will provide confirmation for any worldview that you hold. If you believe that there is Planet X on the other side of the sun and that beings live there who have been uh, influencing human evolution and human history since you know humans were since we were contemporary with say Neanderthals, you can find plenty plenty of documentation to support that on the internet and so something like um, the outrage that one would hope to stoke by exposing actual crimes committed abroad by U.S. military or the outrage that one would hope to stoke by showing absolute you know, documentary proof that American citizens are being killed on American soil by drones, as long as it stays off the TV news, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if you can document it. And the outrage that some people feel about it just distances them from the rest of the population. And we get these sort of false gatekeepers like Democracy Now! or, or Noam Chomsky who, <laughs> who provide the limited hangout. Who say, oh yes, here, here is some documentation of something that will make you know, these the shrill far-left academic liberals angry. And this is presented as you know, the truth when in fact it is still a very mild version of what could be reported that would make would make everybody angry if it were presented in the same venues as the official news. And you turn on the official news. I don't do it often, but uh, I was getting new tires put on a car and I was <laughs> sitting in the uh, the office while my car was being worked on and there was a big flat screen TV there and President Obama was on giving a news conference about – Uh, the domestic surveillance that we all know has been going on. But for some reason, the news organizations latched onto it and made a big deal out of it. And enough of a big deal that he had to give a press conference. And then it turns out that I had been watching Fox News. And so Fox News (laughs) was now trying to stoke outrage over the violations of individual property or uh, privacy, which have been perpetrated by the Obama administration without impugning the Bush administration, which was a strange sort of circus act to try to watch. And they even had a guest on who said, uh, okay, you're, you're upset about this when Obama's doing it, but the, Obama is doing with warrants what Bush did without warrants. How, how is this any different? I'm not really sure where I'm going with this other than when I do tune in to mainstream media, it's a, particularly news media, it is a very bizarre experience because there is loads and loads of just zero content fluff next to stories which seem like they should be important but they're told with such an obvious corporatist nationalistic spin that I couldn't begin to take them seriously as – a source of information other than a source of information about what people are supposed to believe if they're going to be securely in what uh, David Icke likes to call the no-hassle zone. You know, as long as I don't say anything that is outside of this, this realm, then people will not bother me about my beliefs. So that the easiest thing to do is just watch the news, see what they're talking about, and internalize that this is the set of topics that one can speak about and not be hassled over it.
1: As you do, I occasionally... Dabble, occasionally, periodically watch Alex Jones. Ah, oh, yes. Purely because, as you have noted, I too am similarly frustrated by just the very, very strange narrative that seems to exist in the public sphere. I'm probably, I'm not really sympathetic to democracy now as a news source because I see their particular strange aspects. But and similarly. I mean, having watched Jeremy Scahill's Dirty Wars and having purchased the book, I'm really quite disgusted even by that analysis. It's really... It's one of these funny things that those of us that are perturbed by these things probably need to, through our perturbation, almost force independent... Which we kind of do. I mean, that's what you do with Serum. That's kind of what I try to do with Hermit Stone Ape. And we were trying to form these environments where we can actually riff. On these topics, and perhaps you know, speculate about how ridiculous it is that certain things aren't talked about. I mean, you know, that there are elephants continuously in the room with these things. But I think, in particular, associated with predicting future, um, in you know, in the peak oil narrative, but what interests me, in particularly with the militarization, is that you need a passive society in order to allow for these things to you know go on but something that interests me and I follow civil wars with particular interest is is the is the society sufficiently pacified in the US where when there are accidents not if but when there are accidental drone strikes i mean they're obviously targeting particular neighborhoods which in the past would not have caused concern but the first accidental drone strike that hits a particular group in this country may potentially create a perturbation that could lead to some kind of, you know, civil disobedience. I I used to. I don't really anymore because I don't have the time. But as I used to tune into your peak oil narrative, I used to tune into, um, you know libertarian survivalist podcasts and things like this. I mean, I have... My wife's family is basically of that vein fundamentally, but I have gone out and lived out, in you know, out in the wilderness and survived on my own wits, and I don't find anything on the left that talks about those kind of environments fundamentally. So I do occasionally... do I used to drop my ears into the, you know, libertarian survivalist uh, narrative as well. They're talking about things like race wars... I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're on a different plane associated with their conspiracies and what's going to happen. But it is an interesting phenomena associated with how disconnected even even the kind of traditional left in this country... And I'm not talking here about Hillary Clinton, I'm talking about democracy now. My father had a long-standing friendship with a fellow called Bertolt Orman, who... Um, has a clip up on YouTube of when he appeared on Fox News and rolled out a piece of paper showing Democracy Now!'s website. In my, of my father's interaction, he actually... There was a schism in his friendship with this Bertil Allman fellow associated with how the US, what had traditionally been the US left, i.e., you know, union Marxist academic folk, what have you, had completely lost their way in a kind of global narrative perspective. And I think actually the same is because the phenomena of the industrial military complex has hybridized five or six times at least in the past decade, associated with the kind of ongoing narrative that there needs to be a, a strong and distinct narrative that can offer some analysis that just doesn't exist, even on I can't you know. As someone who puts out this kind of stuff passively, even on the internet, do you foresee a time where like-minded folk will eventually become sufficiently fed up that they will get together in a formal sense on the internet, form a community in a formal sense, and start having degrees of intellectual discourse associated with what is going on in a kind of news sense. And can you see, in terms of the people that you talk with, and I think I asked you this last time you were on Stone Ape, do you see people emerging to actually start have this kind, to start having this kind of discussion?
0: It's a difficult question. I I think my answer to that question, and I could answer it in a variety of ways, largely comes down to my mood at the moment. I have connected with a lot of really amazing people via the C-Realm podcast and creating the C-Realm podcast has changed me for the better, but it seems like such a small phenomenon compared to the mainstream media. And so few of the people that I encounter outside of the C-Realm podcast or related activities have any consciousness of the things that I think are important. At the same time, I was, uh, when my kids were visiting here, I took them to Burger King and I was standing in line at Burger King and somebody came up to me and said, I really love your podcast, which was bizarre and, and unsettling.
1: <laughs> they shouldn't be eating at Burger King, right? That's the... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Except I was there. <laughs> I could hardly point a finger. Are people going to get fed up and, and organize via the Internet and really present a challenge to established authority? I don't think so, and I'm trying not to speak from sort of pessimism or, or bitterness here. It just seems as though the demoralization and the degradation of the intellectual capacities of the American public has been an ongoing agenda for decades now and that it has been extraordinarily successful. And I think that the Internet, is marvelous as it is and as marvelous as it has been in my own life, Serves as a massive pacifier. I think it is so much more effective a pacifier than television. I'm just not hopeful that that's, that's the, the tunnel that leads to any sort of light.
1: I think I promised you an hour. I've given you an hour. <laughs> I need to stroke my evil genius cat and contemplate being an <laughs> evil genius in this world. Because, yes, I, I. Yeah, it's scary, but I actually have to agree with you fundamentally. I think this. if this conversation motivates anything, it should be that other like-minded folk out there start having these... Com- I mean, my perspective is that people need to have conversations with other people. Yes. It's one thing to do this thing electronically on the internet, and I do go out into my general day-to-day life and have conversations, particularly associated with Heron's linguistic philosophies, with other people just as a means of doing Heron... A service, but also a means of doing of these other people a service fundamentally. And I think the phenomena associated with what we do on the internet, translating that to a physical form, you and I and Bruce Dahmer are going to be doing in a few weeks' time, my present and perhaps soon-to-be former employer after the uh, conversation <laughs> concludes... <laughs> Because I think, actually, it's a responsibility, and my view is, particularly doing it in a relatively formalised sense, we will get other folk in that conversation who may not have ever heard these ideas previously. It's actually something very interesting associated with moving outside your, your comfort zone and doing these kind of uh, performances to audiences in order to actually start creating a social phenomenon.
0: It's dangerous, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: necessarily... I mean, I, I'm i not sure about you, but I've actually been stalked by someone who's threatened physical harm on me. Mm-hmm. And my view is that... Um, and I feel this way about the NSA as well, and the notion of, you know, bullying, fundamentally, that you have to make some choices along your life associated with danger and these kind of things. And ultimately, if you want to be scared and live your life based on fear... Associate with these things that is what you should do but somewhere through this many of us have made choices to actually exist rather than live in some kind of perspective of fear in these circumstances
0: yes when i said it was dangerous um i was i was speaking more metaphorically it's a very <laughs> a, a light sort of danger the danger is that you know on the podcast i can have a a consistent viewpoint that I express and it attracts a particular audience who comes back because they like it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm at a live event where some of the people are listeners, but they've brought their friends or they have connections to other networks of people, say via transition network or a uh, reality sandwich Evolver spore or something like that. And they bring in people who are interested in one aspect of what I have to say, but who are untested in the rest. There's, there's always the possibility that they're going to be completely offended or completely disinterested and so i I can go and give the same presentation to different audiences you know on on three successive occasions and get three very different reactions and so that's that that element of danger though is part of the fun it's it's part of what motivates me
1: that's one of the reasons actually that in in our early discussion associated with this event i thought i probably should throw the three of us together in this format Firstly, because I'm interested in actually creating something which is completely unrehearsed. And I've done talks with Bruce Damer previously. I'm not sure if you have. Uh, But Bruce always comes through as the normative saint, and I'm always the demon (laughs) in these circumstances. And I embrace this to a certain extent. I'm not sure what role you'll play. Maybe all the roles will be reversed in some some way. But no, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, And, yeah, we will assemble a topic and... uh, a set of buyers and do whatever formality is necessary. Because I think, um, certainly my experience doing these kind of things has always been interesting, but, um, yeah, you know, if they heckle us, we must've done something right.
0: <laughs> it will make for interesting podcasting listening anyway.
1: That's the intention. Always. So yeah. I, am now going to refer to you as K. Okay. Which hopefully is not as offensive as your, uh, Your NSA name or KMO
0: (laughs) KMO is not offensive to me
1: yeah I don't know it's mildly offensive to me but anyway we we will work through it and I will refer to you as K it's been an absolute pleasure and my view is um, we we need to have more of these I think I said that last time and um, as I I muse on more zombie related stuff it will reach a critical mass and we will talk again associated with zombies as well.
0: We could talk for the Z-Realm podcast. Yes (laughs) Alright Thank you much. Talk to you soon.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.